Pharisees and the lawyers often in response to, to their, the religious people thinking that they, they had it all together and they didn't need any more truth. But a lot of times the, the truth of these parables were hidden from them and, and the large crowds and some got it and some didn't understand it. And so we've been looking at this and a part of why we've been looking at the parables of Christ is so that we would know in today's culture that this, this book here, this is the story of God. From, from, from page to page, this is the story of God where we see the characteristics of God in this life. We see how he's worked and moved among people like us. And so we learn about God from this book and we present it as a, as a story about, about him and about his glory. And it's still very relevant for our culture that we share this, this book as, as a living book that is a story about a living God who wants to penetrate the hearts and the lives of people. And it's story form and to get real practical is something that we're trying to learn as a faith family is how do, how do we share this in a way that is relatable and understandable to the, to the culture around us as a story form, as a story of God. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick facts. In the USA, these are all just from the United States of America statistics. Over 50% of people that are over age 16 in the United States are functionally illiterate. They may can read a little bit, but that means they, can, they can't read and process and then reproduce it. Over, over 50% of people in our, our country, 58% of the U.S. adult population never reads another book after high school. 42% of college graduates never read another book once they're done. Maybe they've had enough in college. 80% of U.S. families did not buy or read a book last year. Didn't buy or read a book. And researchers believe that 70% or more of the people in North America prefer non-literate means of communication. This just simply means that they are preferred oral learners. And I think we see that in the, in the movie industry. Man, we, we love movies. We love stories. We love good stories that have a, have a hero, that have a good beginning. There's going to be a, a plot in there. And we love these stories. We're preferred oral learners, most of us. And so I just say that simply to say that Jesus, that Jesus spoke with that strategy. Most of this book, most of this Bible is, is oral, orally communicated. And then passed down, then eventually written down for us. And so Jesus taught in stories, and we're learning from him how he taught in stories and presented the truths of the gospel and the kingdom. And then parables also often created this cultural island. He was, he was relating it to the culture, culture but in a way that he showed kingdom truths that was, it was upside down, counter-cultural to what they would have thought and what they would have expected. Because the, the kingdom that Jesus was talking about and presenting in these parables was an upside down kingdom. It is God's kingdom that is opposite of the world kingdom that a lot of us know and that we, that we live in and we're saturated with. So that's kind of going to be the, the backdrop of where we land is the kingdom of God. Chad preached on the kingdom of God. He preached on the parables about the kingdom of God last week, explaining kind of what is the kingdom. And as we're going to look at some parables today, the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And so we start just for review that, that God has a mission in this world. He's the creator of all things. He made it good and man chose to, to sin and to fall away and therefore sin. This earth inherited the sin and the nature of sin and its effects are, are in us and through us and in everything that we do. And so God has a mission from the beginning to redeem and to restore mankind to his original state the way that he created and made it. And he does that through the person of Jesus Christ. He's, he sent him into the world on this mission. He lived a completely perfect life with no sin, and he, he died 
on a cross. He, he paid the penalty for our sin, the sin that is inside of us, not just outside of us, but the sin is very much inside of us. And then he defeated the power of that sin by raising from the dead. And he ushered in, and he, he, he proclaimed, and he preached a message of repentance and of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And that's what many of these parables are speaking about. It's speaking about the kingdom of God. And we need to know about the kingdom is that it is his reign. Last week we looked at that. The kingdom has a king, and, and the king is Jesus. And the kingdom is, is Jesus and God's reign in this world. The reversal of sin's effects and devastation in this world. And he's called us as his people to, to bring this about. His church, his body that he's called to himself to, to bring this about in the world as he is bringing it and he's our power source to that. And two things real quick before we get into the parables I want us to understand about the kingdom. The kingdom is already and not yet. It is already in the sense that it's already happening. When Jesus came and he, he brought about the kingdom and so the kingdom is in motion. It is already happening where Jesus can work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit that he can reverse the sin's effects in our lives that we have no power, power sin has no power over us anymore. And he's working through this world and not just in this country and not just in this city and this state, but throughout the world to bring about his kingdom through his people, his reign in people's hearts and in people's lives. And it starts small. It starts with the mustard seed and it grows into the branches we looked at last week. So it's already, but it's not yet. It's not yet. It's not yet fully come. It'll be fully come when Jesus Christ comes back at the resurrection of the just and he, he comes back and he completely restores everything and there's no sin in this world so it's important that we know that it's already coming so that we don't lazy around it's not just about us uh, praying a prayer and accepting Christ into our lives and then we're just waiting around here for no reason just till we can go to heaven and we'll be perfectly restored with Christ his kingdom is already and that it is coming and that we are on mission and the reversal of sin's effect in our hearts and our lives it doesn't rule over us but it is happening but it's not yet fully. There's still sin in this world. We're still very much sinners that live in a sinful body and saturated in a sinful world. And it has not yet fully come, but it will. And that's the hope that we sung about. And that's the hope that, that we hold on to is that it is coming. So that kind of sets the stage for what we're going to be looking at on the kingdom. A little review of what we've been talking about and where we're going. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at several parables that Jesus taught. We're going to try to get through these as quick as we can, but they're so important. It all happens in, in one setting. Is why we'll keep these together, but kind of set the stage. Jesus has been asked to come and dine at a, a Pharisee's and lawyer's house, and so he's with these guys that are Pharisees. And that's important to note. You see that in verse 1 on the Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Jesus very much, and as we'll see as we continue in these parables in this story, God has a heart and a special place for those who are poor, for those who are crippled, lame, and helpless. And Jesus spent much of his time with these people. But Jesus also spent much time around 
religious people who, who thought they had it all together. And his approach was very different to how he related to those people. But Jesus here is dining at the house of a Pharisee. And he, I'm sure he has Pharisees' friends that were there. And they're all watching him. And they want to see what he's going to be doing. And there's this man there with dropsy, this disease that would have swelling all over his body. And so Jesus takes this. He asks the question. He poses the question. Is it right? As, as Jesus did many times, is it right to, to heal on the Sabbath? And they had no answer for him. So he, he brings the man to him. He completely heals and restores this man's life, knowing that, that the Pharisees and the lawyers were judging him the whole time. And he, he tells them, hey, which of you, if you didn't have an ox, or if one of your sons didn't fall into a well, would you pick him up on the Sabbath day? And he was basically saying, look, if it was for your own reasons, if it benefited you for your own selfish reasons, you would do it. But because it's somebody else, you won't help him. But Jesus had compassion for this man, and he healed him. So that's the setting. That's the setup that we find ourselves at here in the gospel as we start in verse 7, if you'll read along with me. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at a table with you. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's important to note this isn't, this isn't the first time, this isn't the only time that Jesus said this, and you probably heard this. This isn't an original idea even to Jesus. There's many other rabbis and, and Pharisees. These guys would have known that, and probably whoever these Pharisees, rabbi, and teacher was as they were coming up and learning the ways of the law, they would have been taught this, that they should take the lowest place of honor when they come to and invited by somebody to a dinner or to a banquet. And so Jesus sees them scurrying around and and he addresses this issue, something they would have already known. It's something that we see in Proverbs that's laid out throughout the whole Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel. And, and when you get into some of the prophets, it's usually this, this statement is made. Jesus is repeating this statement that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it's usually talking about a judgment, a coming judgment. If you're, if you're humble before God and repentant of your sins, then, then you will be exalted up with God in this life. But nobody modeled it quite like Jesus did. Nobody had the posture of humility quite like Jesus did. I want to say posture in this life means attitude and an approach towards life. You know, I, uh, if my dad was to be standing up here right beside me, a lot of you would know it's my dad, okay? Because we look a lot alike, kind of have the same shape. He's a little bigger than I am, though. Kind of have the same shape, okay? Um, even this, the hand motions that we do are very similar. Okay, I get that from him. I grew up watching him preach, so probably even our preaching style or whatever you want to say is probably similar from watching him. My actual physical posture, kind of the way that we walk, everybody kind of has a way that they, you know, walk with each other. I kind of walk like my dad, all right? And I've, I've kind of known those things as I've been growing up. As I get older, I'm starting to notice other things that kind of I've gotten from my dad, and it has to do more with a, a posture, more of an attitude and approach towards people and towards life. My dad, is a, he, he's a very good listener. He's one of those listeners, and this, this aggravates some people. My dad doesn't. He's, he's genuinely listening. You know, one of those, you're talking to them. My dad's like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, right, right, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. If you hear him on the phone, that's all you're going to hear. Okay, somebody talking to him, he's going to be doing that. Well, as I get older, I notice, and that's, that's kind of my dad's posture towards people as they're talking. He's listening. That's his approach towards listening, his attitude towards listening to people. And so as I get older, I find, man, I, I do that a lot. Okay, I do that a lot. I take after him a lot in that. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, right, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I'm right there on you, okay? And that's just one thing. There's many things like that in a posture stance. And a lot of that's just from, man, he's my dad. He, I, I respect him. I've grown up looking towards him. I've been around him, so I get a lot of that from him. But a part of it is that my dad is the head of the household. My dad's a follower of Christ, so he, he submits himself unto Christ. But my dad is the head of our household. And so my dad's reign in our household has passed on and been reflected onto his children. And it's something that he, he modeled for us, but it's also something that he, he expected of us, this posture and this approach and this attitude towards life that was expected from us. And that is now happening. And the same is true for the kingdom of God. This kingdom has a king, and the king is Jesus Christ. And so what is, what is the posture of our lives? What is the posture of kingdom people, of followers of Christ? We need only to look to Christ for it. As the almighty, powerful God of the universe who created everything, who if we, we look at his face, we would perish. He warned people in the Old Testament, do not see my face or you will die. I think of the instance when, when he called down Elijah, one of his prophets has, was having a, a battle with Baal, and he called down, and he said they had, they had just trenched water on this altar as God and Baal were going at it. And Elijah's God's representative, and he said, God, call down fire on this wood and, and burn up the trenches. And God did. God had that power to, to bring down fire and burn up that wood and destroy the, pop, the prophets of Baal. That same God of the Old Testament, that same powerful God that we know, he came to this earth. This earth that is, that is broken and destroyed by sin. The earth that he made completely good and he made completely perfect. And he was born of a, of a womb, a human womb. And he, he was a baby and he had to learn how to, to walk and he had to learn how to talk just like me and you. And as he grew up and had disciples, he, he washed their, their stinky and their nasty feet to show them the posture of this life and this kingdom and what it means to follow him. And then he allowed himself to be mocked and questioned by Pharisees who in their finite minds, they, they thought they knew all the answers while Jesus is, is God. Then he allowed himself to be betrayed by one of his disciples and he allowed himself to be mocked by Roman soldiers. And Philippians 2 lays it out for us beautifully. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Here's the exaltation. God humbled himself and now God is raising him up and exalting him. Just as Jesus said many times and he's saying in this parables that God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is our king. 
This is the posture of his kingdom. This is to be the approach of his people and his followers. So where do we ever get the posture of self-absorption that this life is about us? That we are children of God does not mean that we walk around with chest puffed out. That we're better than people who don't, who don't know Christ, but it means that we get on our knees and we bow because we, we do know a king who modeled for us humility. And the others do not know that king. So Jesus, he's addressing this at this banquet as he sees the guys scrambling around trying to get the best seat in the place. And then he addresses, if you move on to verse 12, he addresses not only the invitees, but the man who had invited him. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. For them not to, and what Jesus is saying for them in their context, okay, I want to make sure we understand this, for them not to invite people of the same social status would have just been embarrassing for them. A banquet was a big deal. To have people over was a big deal. And so to have people who were as prestigious as you in reputation or maybe even higher in prestige, really, you would be getting a reward because people would know that and they would be looking to you and they would be saying, oh man, did you see who he had over at his house? Did you see that group, that party that he had over? Of those prestigious people with high positions and high authority. So what Jesus is saying to them is completely the opposite. When you go, invite, invite people of lower social status than you who can't, who can't repay you. People won't look and see that you're getting a reward because of who you know and the friends that you know. Invite people who, who cannot repay you with material things or with, with a reputation that you would have. And I think what we can learn from Jesus and what Jesus is saying is that we got to be careful not to sink the wrong reward in kingdom life and in kingdom living. I was watching, uh, I know some of you probably watch the show The Office and I was watching last night and as I was kind of thinking over some of this stuff this episode just happened to, to come on where uh, you know Dwight and, and very contrary to what his character usually is he comes in and he's got bagels one morning for everybody for the whole office and he's handing out free bagels he went and got them and he's doing all these favors for people all day he's doing these favors everybody's kind of like oh God, you know thanks and so him and Andy kind of get into this favor war where they're trying to, they don't want to owe each other, so they're trying to, you know, they're holding the door, then the other one goes and holds the door again for him or gets something off the shelf or whatever. They get into this favor war. But what's funny is that Dwight, he's doing these things not just for the benefit, just to do them. He wants something in return. He wants a reward. So he'll say, thanks. And they'll say, no, you know, they'll say, thanks. They'll say, no problem. You just owe me one. You know, you just owe me one. And what he's trying to do is that he wants to get everybody in the office to owe him a favor He's trying to get his, his, his nemesis, his enemy, Jim, fired from his position. Okay, so he wants everybody to owe him. And as I was just thinking about that, I'm thinking about maybe what we can learn here from Jesus. You know, he's, do, he's doing these things, but not, not for the good of the people, not for the benefit of their needs, but so that he would be owed one. The reward would, would come back to him and that he would get what he wants. It makes me think of the story in Acts chapter 8. There's a man named Simon in Acts chapter 8. 
And he's a magician. He does some pretty cool magic tricks, man. And the people are amazed by what Simon can do and the tricks that he can do. But Philip, one of, one of the disciples of Jesus, comes to town. This is in Samaria. He comes to town, and he's, he's, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's preaching this gospel, this gospel message about Jesus. And people are receiving it, man. They're believing what, what Philip is saying. He's baptizing them. And so Simon, the magician, he's one of these who, who comes, and he believes in the gospel, and he's baptized. And so Peter and John, kind of the big dogs, they come because this is Samaria. It's kind of a new region for the gospel to be spreading and to be accepted. So Peter and John, they come and they're checking things out and they see that the people haven't received the Holy Spirit. So they begin laying hands on people that they would, they would receive the Holy Spirit. And as, they, as they're praying for these people, they are. They're receiving it in Samaria. And Simon sees this, man. He's used, to, he's used to amazing the people with his magic. He sees this going on. He sees that people's lives are being changed. They're full of the Spirit. Their, their hearts are changing from the inside out. And he sees this going on. He comes to, to Peter and John and he says, Peter and John, man, I, I want this. I want what you got here. I'm, I'm a pretty wealthy guy from doing my magic. I'll give you some money. Give me your abilities to be able to do this. And Peter was pretty, if you know the story, Peter was pretty harsh to him. He said, you need to repent of your wickedness. You need to repent and, and hope that God forgives you of the intent of your heart. It's not that you would be able to give people the Holy Spirit so they would be filled and be able to go out and serve and live for Christ and live for his kingdom. Simon's intent was not to point people to Jesus. Simon's intent was to point people to himself. The people would be amazed by who he is and what he does. I feel this, hits, this, this story always causes me to check my motives in life of following after Christ and, and what I do and the things that I do. Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I serve? Why do I love? And it's biblical that we would check ourselves and examine ourselves. I feel this hits home to our culture that we live here, here in the South, a culture of, of religion. And maybe you grew up in a family where these things are just expected of us. But what's our real motive? Is it really for the glory of God? Is it really to point people to Jesus? Or is it so that maybe our reputation won't be destroyed if we stop doing some of the things that we once did? Or maybe we start doing some, some things for Christ, not for pointing people to Jesus and, and making disciples, but maybe it's we want somebody to notice in our lives that we're doing something that in this culture is highly praised. So Jesus is addressing the man and he's addressing the motives. Now in verse 15, we'll read, and I don't know if this guy, I'm not sure what the intent and the heart of this guy is. Maybe he's just trying to change the subject. It's getting too too serious for him. I don't know. Maybe he's just like making a joke. I'm not sure. There's a lot of different opinions from scholars on this. But in verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him, they heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, to this man, he's, he's addressed the people who were invited as they were trying to get the highest seat. He's shown them the posture of kingdom living. He's addressed the person who's invited the people. He showed them that, what is your motive? Do not proclaim the kingdom and live for this kingdom with a, with a wrong motive. 
Now he's addressing this man. And he gives him a parable and he says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and I must see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and bring in the crippled and the blind and the lame. We see Jesus returning back to these same groups of people. He has a special heart for those who, who can't help themselves and who are humbled just in their, by their position in life. And the servant said, verse 22, the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and to the hedges and compel people to come in. That word compel, man, that is, that is a strong word in the original language. Urge people to come in. Strongly, strongly urge people to come in. That my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of this, those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now for them, this guy had sent out invitations to these guys. And for them, in, in their culture, an invitation would have been like for us, an RSVP. Okay? So kind of, we get the invitation, and then we, we kind of hold on to it, and we're like, we, if we just don't let them know anything, then we don't have to go. You know, that type of deal. You RSVP if you're going to come back. An invitation for them meant an RSVP. That meant that they, these guys were coming. They had said that they were coming to the banquet. They were coming. But then as it gets closer, they realize there's some things they got. They, they begin to all make excuses. And all the excuses, if you notice and you look there, you can look for yourself. All the excuses, if you just think about them, they're all self-absorbed. They're all about themselves. There's a, there's a field. This guy's got to go check his property out. He's got to make sure his property's in good shape. This guy's got ox. He's got to make sure that they work so that he can plow his field so that he can make a living. This one guy gets married, okay? It seems like a good excuse. He got married and he said, I can't come. Because even in, in Deuteronomy 24.5, we see that if a, a person gets married for the, for the Jews, for God's people, the Israelites, he lays down the law that if, if somebody was to get married, they don't have to go off to war for that first year of marriage. So it was, it was somewhat of a, for their time, they would have understood that as being a pretty valid excuse. But in Jesus' parable, no excuse is the right excuse. And we talked a little bit about this several weeks ago as I preached and we looked at Haggai and the people of God. It seems like they're always making excuses to not push and promote God's glory and God's agenda and always kind of turning inwards towards ourselves. But I see a, a, a second truth in this passage. As I studied it and kind of looked at it and it's, it's a scary one in that these guys had already said they're coming to the banquet so they know there's a banquet. And here for the banquet, Jesus in all these parables, the banquet, we see it all through the Old Testament that it refers to this time with, with being with God and in eternity and the kingdom of God as a, as a banquet, as a feast that people come and people enjoy. So the banquet is here, is the, is the kingdom of God. And these guys know that they've been invited to that kingdom. And they've already said we're coming. But something happens in their life 
and the, the personal things in their life, the personal issues, their work, their hobbies, their things that they find important, that are important for them. Their families, this guy's family, he's been married. These things will prevent them from participating in the kingdom of God, in the banquet. And that's scary. It's scary for people who know the truth of God. That God has a mission that he sent Christ to this world, that we are to be about his glory in this world and his bringing about his kingdom, his reign, the reversal of sin's effects. Know the truth, but not to participate in the calling and in the kingdom. I was reading a book this week that I've been reading, and there's a quote in there that uh, hit, hit me hard, and I think applies to our culture very well. It says, we as Christians in the West, meaning here, mainly in America, have the tendency to be educated beyond our obedience. We're educated beyond our obedience. We know so much about the gospel, about Christ. We go to conferences, we go to studies, we go to weekend retreats. Then we come back from those conferences and, we're, conferences and we start a 10-week study on what we learned at the conference so that we can learn more about that. And learning is, is not bad. We need to learn and we need to soak up this word and we need to learn who God is, not for the purpose of knowledge, but we read this book so that we will know more about Christ and about who he is and about how he wants us to live. But knowledge without obedience will not bring in the kingdom of God on this earth. It will not bring about God's reign. And he's going to bring it no matter what. He's calling us to participate in that. And it is an honor and it is a privilege and it is a posture that we take under the king that we serve to participate. Sometimes I feel like we think God needs to twist our arm to get us to participate. He's not twisting our arm because he will reign. We beg him to be a part of the kingdom work that he's doing because it is our joy to do it. It is our joy to serve our king and our master. Somehow we have twisted it so that the things, that, the resources that, and the families that, that God has given us so that we can more greatly bring about his kingdom and glorify his name. We've twisted it so that those things end up becoming the things that hinder us the most and tie us down to this worldly kingdom the most. And so Jesus is teaching this all in one setting to the invitees. He's showing them this is the posture of the kingdom. Follow the posture of who I am. I'm the king of this kingdom. Humble yourselves and you'll be exalted to have any kind of salvation experience in our lives we've had to have come to this point we humble ourselves before God realize we cannot help ourselves we cannot help our sin problem that we have to rely on an outside source and that outside source is Jesus Christ and it's showing what what is what is your what is our motives examine our motives in proclaiming and living in the kingdom is it really about pointing people to Christ is it really about pointing people to Jesus and then participation in the kingdom is a must. We can know all about it all that we want, but participation is a privilege and is a joy for us. If you would turn 
to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I want to end on a very encouraging note for us who, who have put our faith in Christ. I'm going to ask that the band can start making their way up. In Galatians 2.20, I know this is probably familiar to a lot of us, but if you would just, man, let's just read this. Let's, let's look into this and search for what this is saying. This is Paul speaking. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in him. Christ is not outside of him. The good things that Christ is doing in his heart is not outside of him. These things that he does or he doesn't do, the rules that he must follow or that he must not follow. Paul is saying, this is my identity. Christ lives in me. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, it is our identity. We are his sons and we are his daughters. He lives in us. We are children of God. And he is working in our hearts and our lives to bring this about. He has predestined for us, Romans 8, 29, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged by this. That Know that these struggles of this kingdom, because this kingdom is not yet fully. There is still sin that we will fight and that we will, that we will battle with. But he has given us a Holy Spirit inside of us to battle these things. Because it's our identity now. We belong to him. Sin will ultimately not conquer us. We will conquer sin because of Christ in us. This is our identity. He, he lives in me, and I live now my life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. We talked about motives this morning. This next part, a couple weeks ago, man, this, this hit me. I've known this verse. I've read this verse over and over. But we're talking about Christ. We're talking about that God who created everything, who humbled himself in a posture. And Paul makes it so personal for him, and it's so personal for us who've put our faith in Christ, who loved me. And Christ, he gave himself for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you have faith in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. So don't hear this sermon this morning and think, man, this is about things that I have to start doing now. Or that I don't do so that I'm right with God. You are right with God if you have faith in Christ. He's paid the penalty. But here's a, an extended part of his grace. And this is how his grace reigns in our lives. Is that he is making us more holy. He's making us more holy. So will we today stop the resistance of what God wants to do in our hearts and wants to do in our lives so that we would bring about his glory and bring about the kingdom. And for us to do that, we get on our knees in the posture that Jesus Christ showed us. We humble ourselves before him. We let go of things that we hold on to and the wrong motives that we hold on to. And we say, God, I want to participate in your kingdom because it is my joy. And if it's not my joy, God, you make it my joy. I don't know how many times I've had to pray to Christ because we can be honest with Christ he already knows the intent of our hearts God calls me to, to love you more calls me to love people I don't, I don't love people like I should 
God already knows that about you. God calls me to want to do good. Not just to do good, but to want to do good. God, make that of me. Don't feel guilty before God if you don't want to do good. There's sin living inside of us that is tearing at us. And God knows this battle, and he's there, and he loved you, and he gave himself for you. So, so come before him honestly and say, God, I don't even know if I want to do good. Give me the want to even want to do good. To want to bring about your glory and your kingdom. These guys are going to start praying. I just want to lead. If you, everybody would just bow their heads. I want to lead us in a time of just prayer before God. I believe in the importance of us praying as a faith family together. When we're gathered in this time, it is time to encourage and, and to together come before God. Hand in hand. So would you just pray and you, you begin to first, let's just come to God. Let's... And you're just in your own heart and your own spirit. Would you just thank God for what he's done for us? That he loved us. He loved you. He gave himself for you. pray just for yourself now as, as individuals, followers of Christ, would you pray that you would that God would give us the posture of his kingdom, the posture that he perfectly modeled for us by humbling himself death on a cross God, to just examine your motives in life. You say, God, I examine our, our motives, examine our lives. May my only motive be that out of response to the love and the grace that you've shown me, that I want to make your name known in this salvation that you've given me known. And for no other purpose. I just want to spend some time praying. You may be a visitor here, but many are a part of this faith family. You're regular here. And you, but I want all, you can pray for us, just as a faith family, that we would take on this posture that Christ shows as his body, as the body of Christ, together in this community in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We would take on a posture of humility because we have a king who has humbled himself and we serve that king. And then would you also pray for our participation in the kingdom of God. There will be no excuse for us as a body.
Father, thank you for your love and your grace that is our salvation. It is our motivation that you are so great and glorious that it, God, would you create in us a joy to serve you, a joy to be a part of your kingdom and to to proclaim the gospel message that that brings about life change in people. God, you bring about the change. God, help us to examine our lives and see the areas in our lives, God, where we're just making excuses, really. Things that we're holding on to, God, that are not bad things, God, but we're, we've twisted them and we've let them get in the way of what you want to do with us. God, I pray for our city. Pray that we would all join together in praying for our city, God, as we've seen crime increase over the last couple of months. God, I pray for the people right around us, God, that, that you would even use us, God, or use whatever you need to use, your agents of grace and mercy of, and love to bring about a change in people's lives. Thank you for your word, God, that we have to look to and learn from, God. And I just praise you, God, as we continue to worship who you are. May it just be true of our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to just take whatever position you want to, um, but just as... uh, begin to think about how big God is this morning, um, how big he is in comparison to us. It's infinite. So as pride is in our heart this morning, uh, I pray that it's shattered by the image of God. So stand with me and sing if you want, and we'll begin to sing out.